Hi everyone, welcome to the March 2021 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and I'm pleased to say that this is our Silver Jubilee. Yes, episode 25 has arrived. And it seems fitting that today we're welcoming back two classic guests from previous episodes. Vanessa Yeager from episode 15 and Paul McGlone from way back in episode 6 will both be joining me later to talk about their new report on the state of cyber risk in the pensions industry. But first, it's news time. The Pension Schemes Act 2021 has finally received royal assent. We told you this was coming in last month's episode, but it eventually happened on the 11th of February. If you want more information on what's in the Act, listen back to last month's interview with Matthew Behrens and Ahmed Ali. But one point to bear in mind is that this isn't the end of the road. The main provisions of the Act still need secondary legislation, both to bring them into force and to fill in some of the details. The Pensions Minister, Guy Opperman, has acknowledged this and said that getting the meat on the bones, that's his words, not mine, is now his number one priority. There's a particular focus on getting the TCFD regulations in place, with an expectation that this will happen before November's UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. The Minister had previously suggested that a second pensions bill would be introduced before the end of this Parliament, including legislation for DB super funds. His latest comments don't rule this out, but it does sound like this is more of a long-term aim than something we'll be seeing in the next year or so. The pensions regulator recently put out an interim response to its first consultation on the new DB funding code. This highlighted general support for the proposed principles, but also noted the concerns raised on how the principles would be applied through the twin track compliance regime. A second consultation will include the draft code of practice and set out TPR's proposed regulatory approach, including its process for reviewing fast track guidelines, its approach to assessing valuations, engaging with schemes and enforcement. We expect this second consultation to come in the second half of this year. However, TPR's Executive Director for Regulatory Policy, David Fares, did say this month that a lot of the detail will depend on the secondary legislation I talked about in the first news story, so we may see things push back further if that takes a while to come through. TPR had already said that it was unlikely the new code would be in place before 2022, so that gave a bit more certainty to schemes with valuation dates in 2021. Mr. Fares went a bit further than this in his latest comments, suggesting that even valuations being done in the first quarter of 2022 wouldn't fall under the new code, although it's not entirely clear whether this relates to the effective date of the valuation or the date the valuation is completed. PASA's GMP Equalisation Working Group has issued its latest guidance note, following on from 2019's guidance on methods and last year's guidance on interaction with GMP reconciliation, data and member communications. The new guidance highlights tax issues schemes may encounter when implementing GMP equalisation and suggests possible approaches for dealing with those issues. This one's quite technical and there's 68 pages of it, but there is actually some helpful stuff in there. In particular, it includes some helpful member examples showing how trustees might take the statements already made by HMRC and apply them in practice, at least in the case of schemes where a dual records approach is being used. The big gap in all this is guidance for schemes that want to go down the conversion route, as neither HMRC nor PASS's working group have really said anything about that yet. The working group have said they expect to issue some guidance on conversion, which will also include tax considerations, by the end of April. So I guess I'll be giving you an update on that one way or the other in a couple of months' time. The Treasury's published a consultation on the government's intended increase to the normal minimum pension age, from age 55 to age 57, with effect from 2028. 
This seems to have attracted a fair bit of press attention, but the increase itself isn't really news. I mean, this is something that was first set out in the 2014 budget, and the government reconfirmed it just a few months ago, which of course you would know if you were listening to the October 2020 episode of this podcast. The consultation confirms that members of the firefighters, police and armed forces public service pension schemes wouldn't be affected by the change. It also seeks views on the proposed protection regime for members of other schemes, which would effectively mean that members who currently have a right written into the scheme rules to take their benefits before age 57 could retain this right. This consultation will run until the 22nd of April. And finally, Aon's latest DC survey is out now. To explore the reality of DC pension provision and wider financial well-being today, we work with YouGov to survey over 2,000 employees across a wide range of age groups, incomes and industries. The resulting report provides an insight into the current financial position and pension planning of the UK's employees. And some of the headlines are quite alarming, really. Just a couple of key stats for you to think about. Um, so 87% of employees are expecting a shortfall in their retirement income based on their current provision. And one in four think they'll never be able to retire. Our DC specialists are recording their own series of podcasts on this topic, so I won't steal any more of their thunder, but I will include links to the report and podcasts in the show notes. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. It's been a couple of years since we last talked about cyber risk on the podcast, but it hasn't gone away. And if anything, it's only become more topical since then. Last month, Aon published a report on the state of cyber risk in the pensions industry with data collected from over 100 schemes. And today I'm joined by two of its authors, Paul McGlone and Vanessa Yeager. So, Paul, I just wanted to start by asking about the cyber scorecard. What is it and why did you develop it? One of the questions we get asked regularly by our, our clients is how they're doing on managing cyber threats and, and often how they compare to other schemes. So we thought that a good way of doing that was actually to offer our clients the opportunity to do individual assessments where they fill in a, a series of multiple choice questions and we get to rank them, benchmark them, if you like, against the other schemes that fill it in. So for the past probably nine months or so, that's what we've been doing. And it's meant that we've ended up with an awful lot of data, which is what we've now written up into this report that you've just talked about. Okay, so I think you said 50 questions and around 100 schemes. That does sound like a lot of data. What would you say are the main headlines that are coming out of your report? There's clearly an awful lot of things to choose from in the report. But I guess if I start at a high level, one of the things it showed us was that there's a huge range between the best and the worst schemes when it comes to, you know, looking at how well prepared they are. Now, we already know from anecdotal evidence um, that that's the case, but that data really showed that up quite starkly. So there's some schemes, for example, who've done an awful lot and and they're really very well positioned and and that shows up in their responses. But there are other schemes where they haven't really thought very much about even basic cyber protections. Now, that's not to say that their schemes are at risk. They they almost certainly use administrators and third-party providers who've got good controls in place. But they, as trustees, often haven't invested the time, and, and, and that does present risks. By definition, I guess, the schemes that filled in this assessment are already interested in cyber risk in some way, and so it's perhaps not surprising that we saw some of the best schemes in there. Um, but we did also see a number of schemes who were you know, at quite an early stage in their journey, perhaps just realizing this is something they've got to do and and using the assessment as a way of understanding where they are now and, and, you know, what they need to do next. So if we start looking at some of the detail in here, Vanessa, what do you think were the most interesting findings from your point of view? 
So I think it was probably the proportion of schemes that have an instant response plan to deal with an attack. So when we look at cyber risk, we tend to put actions into one of three parts that we call seek, shield and solve. Where seek is about understanding the risk, shield is about protecting yourself against those risks and solve is about dealing with things if they happen. And if you go back about three years, the pensions regulator issued some guidance that talks about these different areas, although they didn't describe it in exactly these words. But they specifically said that schemes should have a plan in place. And when we did the assessment, we found that perhaps surprisingly, only 40% of schemes told us they had what they call a robust instant response plan. Now, a number of them had component parts. So, for example, 75% of schemes tell us they have a list of contacts that they can use if there's an incident. But even then, that means 25% of schemes don't, which potentially means they don't even know how to contact one another in the event of a crisis. But given the regulator said three years ago that you should have a plan, we were quite surprised that only 40% of schemes have a proper plan. And remember, these are schemes who are sufficiently interested in cyber risk already that they're filling out our assessment. And actually, when we shared these results with the pensions regulator, one of their observations was around how low this figure was. So for me, I think that was one of the concerning highlights. And Paul, are there any specific points that you wanted to pick out? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me was the degree to which pension schemes can or can't rely on their sponsor. And we see this in, in a number of different areas. So for example, there are some schemes that rely on their sponsor to, to a heavy extent, such as an admin team. But even where that's not the case, a lot of schemes do rely on their sponsor to support them in the event of a cyber attack. So if you think about the, the shield phase that Vanessa mentioned, um, schemes might look to assess their third party providers, such as administrators and, and sponsors can help with that. Something like 90% of schemes do some sort of assessment on their administrator. It's, it's actually less for other providers, maybe only 50% or so. Um, and about probably 20 to 30% of those schemes said that they use their sponsor to do that for them. Now that, that's ideal if you can get the sponsor to to do that assessment in the same way they do for their own providers, then that's perfect. But, you know, related to that, the other way in which schemes tend to run on their sponsor is to help if, if there is an incident. And, and in that case, over 60% of schemes told us that they were going to rely on the sponsor to help them deal with any cyber attack. Now, anecdotally, we, we don't think that's the case. We find an awful lot of schemes that think they can get support from the sponsor, but when they turn around and ask for it, that they can't, either because they don't know who to contact or because when they do contact them, they're too busy or they haven't got a brief to support the pension scheme. So, so we think there's an over-reliance of trustees on assuming that the sponsor will be able to help them out. And, you know, where they can, that's great, but we're, we're concerned that in many cases they can't and that's not properly understood. So Vanessa, coming back to you, based on the assessments you've seen, is there one common thing you'd recommend trustees do to improve their cyber resilience? Well, there isn't one single thing as different schemes are at very different points on their journey. And so they've prioritised different things in the past. So we find that each scorecard is unique and it can sometimes point to gaps in the trustees thinking. So actions may be something we've mentioned earlier. So an instant response plan could be a good quick win or it might be around assessing your administrator. But one of the common things we find, which is also another quick win, is around an idea we call trustee cyber hygiene, which is making sure that trustees themselves aren't the weakest link. Basic hygiene would be things like trustees having secure email accounts, not sharing data with one another through email, and ensuring passwords are long and unique. 
And it's a quick win because for existing trustees, it should be about reminding them and documenting what they already should be doing. And for new trustees, it's more of a document that you hand out when they get appointed to say, these are our expectations. This is how we expect you to behave to ensure that you do your part in protecting the scheme against this ever-growing risk. That's not something I'd say everyone needs to do, but it's quite a common and easy win that trustees can put in place. And from experience, many like having clear guidance, but right now, only about a third of schemes already have something like this. And Paul, just to wrap up, if our listeners wanted to know more, where could they go to get more information about this? Okay, so there's two things they can do. First of all, if they want to take part in the scorecard themselves, then they can, and that, that's very easy. You can go to www.aon.com slash cyberscorecard. That, that's all one word. And that will give them their own personal results. They're completely free, uh, and they'll be sent a copy of the main report at the same time. Um, of course, if you don't want to do the assessment, they can just get the report, and that's available on our website. It, it's quite a long URL, if I'm honest, but if you go to Google and enter Aon Cyber Scorecard Report, then you'll find it. Or, of course, you can contact anyone at Aon and they'll point you towards it. Sounds good. And don't worry if you didn't get a chance to write that down. I think I'll also be including links to the scorecard and the report in the show notes. So I think all that remains now is just to thank both of you for joining us today. And we look forward to having you both back on the podcast again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Right, that's everything for today. So thanks again to my guests, Paul McGlone and Vanessa Yeager. And thanks to you for listening. I'll be back next month, possibly talking about the budget, but it really does depend what the Chancellor pulls out of his little red box, and I've given up trying to guess myself. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify, so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like more information on our retirement solutions, or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.